time for Coffee with the Chicken Ladies, a podcast for people who love chickens. Hey, everybody, and welcome. It's Chrissy and Holly from Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. We're here, and this is episode number 70, can you believe it, of our podcast, where we talk about everything chicken, family, fun, and more chickens. More chickens! We drink a ton of coffee. I'm talking a ton. But most importantly, we hug chickens every day and we kiss them too. Don't forget. We brew coffee from a little coffee house here in Bel Air, Maryland. Holly Ann, what kind of coffee are we brewing today? This is called Morning Joe. Morning Joe. How is Joe in the morning? (laughs) Slow. (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready to sip some coffee and chat? I am. So, how are you doing? It's the end of March, man. It's Woo! warm. I'm starting to think about shearing time. Oh, boy. Yep. That always falls right at a bad point for us, it seems like. Right when we have something going on. That part of the spring is always so busy. Yeah. It just, there's no getting around it. My llama and alpaca herd is a lot smaller with three llamas and three alpacas. Yeah. I could do them in a day or two if I need yeah. to. Then we just wait for the sheep shearer because neither Pete nor I can shear the sheep ourselves anymore. No, 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 no. <laughs> don't even try it. I am just looking forward to getting some nice flowers in the bed. Oh, yeah. I'm going through. I've talked about this before, but the weather has not been consistently nice all the time. Oh, it's been crazy. So I've been going through trying to deadhead the flowers a little yeah. bits at a time. Right now, my gardens are not even photo ready. Mine are very much a work in progress for a bunch of reasons. I did buy violas. I absolutely love violas. A pansy, but it's smaller, right? Yeah. When I was at the feed store, they had a bunch of pansies and violas set up for sale. And I was walking by and the viola, the scent, yeah, just wafted over to me. And I found myself turning around, not even of my own volition, and entering the store with a whole flat yeah. of these violas. So wait, can you plant them now? Are they like hardy for yeah. early spring yes. so they can take the cold? Yes. They went in the front garden by my door. They're just gorgeous in that smell. Oh, it's it's amazing. Yeah. So last week was the first day of spring. And woohoo! Thank God. Yeah, absolutely. You know what else today is? Your mom's birthday. It is my mom's birthday. Happy birthday, mom. Happy birthday, Miss Jane. Yay. I'm just ready for spring, man. It's here. I know. I'm ready for it. I have some few plans that I really want to do a lot around the big runs uh-huh. this year. I want to get flowers, and I'm thinking about planting something that's substantial but still room in between uh-huh. to act as a natural buffer yeah. for winds, for rain. Right, yeah. Uh, not yeah. to hide them because I want to be able to see if somebody's no, digging. We back up against the woods, yeah. and I mean, there are some perils there. You have to be really careful with, yeah. with your fencing and make sure it's secure, but it really does cut down on things like the wind whipping through. Yes. It makes a big difference. Even like I was thinking of getting some giant wine planters. We'll see if I do this or not. It's just an idea. And just kind of setting them because you know how heavy they are. They're very heavy. Once you fill them and put pretty flowers in oh, them. Oh, you're not moving them very easily. You're not moving them. Uh-huh. And if I put them around the perimeter of the runs, they would be both beautiful and blocking some of the cool. wind. And you could grow more things for your chickens herbs. to eat. Herbs and, you know, edible flowers and that sort of thing. Exactly. The violas, by the way, are edible flowers. Are they really? You can sugar them, actually. We have a little article oh, on yes, our website we do. You've about done that sugaring before. violets, but you can sugar the violas as well. They smell so good. They smell so good and they're gorgeous. Beautiful cake decoration. They are. Okay, so let's just take a minute to ask everyone a huge favor. If you're listening to our show and you're loving it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a written review. It does amazing things for our show, and we just have the best time reading your lovely words. Thank you. Thank you so much to all the listeners who have left us reviews recently, and there have been a lot. Yes, thank you so much. If you're looking for other ways to support the podcast, you can head over to our Etsy shop, check out the t-shirts that we have on offer. We have mugs for order. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You can subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. You can share your favorite episodes on social media. Oh, I want to thank my cousin, Michelle, for sharing our post on her social media. Oh, nice. It makes my day. She shares our Facebook post onto her Facebook post. And that simple little thing grows our podcast. It it gets more eyes and ears on us. Yes. Thank you, Michelle. I love you. The other thing you can do to help support the podcast is head over to our show notes, use our affiliate links, and buy products from our sponsors. Yay! We have some exciting news to share from our sponsor, Grubly Farms. From now until the end of March, you can receive 25% off if you're a first-time buyer. 
I'm a longtime subscriber, and my flock love the healthy, nutritious treats, plus all products ship free. If you haven't heard, Grublies has a fantastic layer pellet and crumble feed. It's packed with plant and insect protein, perfect for those picky chickens or ducks. This offer does not apply to subscriptions and cannot be combined with any other discounts. It's a great time to try Grubbly Farms if you haven't yet. Use the code COFFEELADIES25. Try it today. Hey, Chris. Yeah. Do you like subscription boxes? Does it have anything to do with chicken? Of course. Then, yeah. Let me take a minute to tell everybody about the Chicken Love Box. If you love goodies for your chickens and you, you need to go to chickenlove.com. I love the Mega Box. Tons of useful products for my flock and a chicken tea for me. You can't go wrong with a chicken tea. It is so soft and so cute. In the March Box, I absolutely love the String of Fabric Prosperity Chickens and the Blank Watercolor Chicken Note Card. I love those amazing chicken salt and pepper shakers. They look so cute in my kitchen. And Strong Animal Chicken Essentials has their flock fixer in the box. You can't go wrong with it. Boxes start at $39. They ship immediately after your purchase, and shipping is always free. It's such a great deal. Don't wait. Get off the nest and click already. That's chickenlove.com. That's chickenluv.com. Get your subscription today. Breathe a spotlight. Pass the pasta, please. Oh, we're Mediterranean. <laughs> we are Mediterranean, I see. But so, these are not Italian chickens. They're not they Italian, Spanish. but they're Mediterranean. Yes. I kind of did an Italian, but I am Italian. It just pours out of me, man. So, yes, we are doing the Menorca. The Menorca is absolutely gorgeous. They're the largest chicken in the Mediterranean class. Wow. Yeah. So there are a couple reasons for that, which we'll get into in a minute. The most common color of Menorca is black. And they have those large white earlobes. I mean, they got some major earrings going on. They so, do. I mean, they got like the biggest pearls you can get. You know, if you had to classify pearls, they would have the Tiffany. They surely would. <laughs> I mean, their earlobes are... Gigantic Tahitian pearls. They are huge. You can see the resemblance to the white-faced black Spanish. And if you want to learn about this chicken, and this is one of our favorites, that's why we did this breed spotlight all the way back in episode one. Episode one. The Can you we, believe right, that? That's when we talk about the white-faced black Spanish. According to the American Poultry Association, at one time the Menorcas were called red-faced black Spanish. Wow. Yeah. Obviously, that hasn't been for a long time. Yeah, exactly. The Menorca chicken takes its name from the Spanish island of Menorca. Can we go? It's so pretty. Oh my. <laughs> it is the most beautiful island. It's a gorgeous island in the Mediterranean Sea. I'm there. And apparently the modern Menorca is descended from stock that poultry historians think is an old version of the Castilian chicken. Okay. So when they were taken from the island, they were heavily bred. Let's backtrack a tiny bit. We know that the Menorca was imported into the UK as early as like 1780s, right. very early. And then it became common from about 1830 onwards. And one of the reasons why is because it was a super popular showbird. It was a slower period of time. So a lot of people had backyard chickens. Because there wasn't any TV, no Netflix. There was no TV, no Netflix, no Hulu, no, no Prime. No internet at all. No internet. You couldn't go looking on eBay. So, okay? you, so you showed chickens. So you showed chickens. It was a fun activity to well, do. It was a hobby. I mean, as early as 1780, they were in the UK. Again, a slower time. Right. They were so beautiful that British people really not only wanted to show them, but wanted to breed them into what they thought the ideal Menorca would look like. If you can, I know a lot of people listen to us in the car. Just Google the Menorca chicken and look at these birds. They're uh -huh. absolutely beautiful. They are. And they are the cousin of the white-faced black Spanish. And they're on the big side for a Mediterranean breed. So your cockerels are about nine pounds. That's huge for a Mediterranean breed. Exactly. And your hens are about seven and a half. Huge. So this part won't surprise you. One of the breeds they bred into this bird was the Langshan. Because they wanted size? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge bird. It's a huge bird. The Mediterraneans are the cornerstone for so many breeds yes. because of their egg-laying ability, which yeah. we know this. So what is one thing that somebody would want to do to a Mediterranean breed? Make it bigger. Make it bigger. Although when you do that, you do take away that efficiency with eating. Uh, that's what I was going for, the efficiency with eating. So they're gorgeous chickens. As we said, the British were breeding the Langshan into them. So I've read from some poultry historians that the addition of the Langshan at first really made them out of balance. 
I can see that yeah. totally. I mean, you're going from a very small chicken that's built for egg laying. That's and been evolving warmer. on this island. Yeah, that's yeah. for a warmer environment to, okay, let's go to one of the larger chickens. Right. Who, you a know, Asiatic in there. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how that could be. Over successive generations, they've really bred them back into this beautifully balanced bird. Bigger, but still all the beautiful things you expect to see in a Mediterranean bird. Yeah, exactly. They have the upright tail, which is classic for a Mediterranean. Uh-huh. We talk about Mediterranean. We're talking about white-faced black Spanish, but also leghorns. Right. And illusions. Yes. All those chickens that have that similar body shape uh-huh. that's different than when we talk about the large fluffy breeds. So, yeah, they have the upright tail, the taller legs, the smaller body. But this chicken is the next level up in largeness. They're a little bit more cold hardy. I could see that because they are. They're still heat hardy, but they're definitely a little bit more cold hardy, which is another reason they were very popular homestead chickens at one point. They have the red face instead of the white face. Right. They have those great big pearly rings. They're Tiffany for sure. The roosters have got huge comb and waddle. They look like a leghorn to me. They're all cousins of each other. Right. If you're as much of a chicken geek as we are, you generally know one of the Mediterranean birds when you see it. You can tell the body shape is very different from something else. Let's talk about the hens. They look like a leghorn to me. Just a bigger leghorn. A bigger bigger leghorn with an upright tail, a large comb, because your female Mediterraneans are still going to have big combs. They have, the comb flops over on a lot of the hens, so you have that sort of cute, jaunty look. It's now, adorable. their earlobes are not as large as the roots. No. Which we've learned, and I've always had an argument with, I think the girls should get the bigger earlobes. Genetically, but, how would one do that? I don't know. I don't know either. But <laughs> I feel like the males get flashier because that's how they're attracting the hey, females. <laughs> Look at my big earlobes, baby. <laughs> you know what they say. <laughs> the bigger the earlobe. <laughs> wow, that was quick. <laughs> but they make this chicken what it is are the earlobes to me. Their coloring is gorgeous. There's the black. There's a buff, which we were talking about earlier. There is, and there's a white. So we'll backtrack a little bit because that's important. Yeah. So the Menorca arrived in the U.S. in 1884. And this is interesting because when they arrived in the U.S., U.S. breeders started to put their own stamp on them. And they developed a rose comb version. Americans like rose combs. Everything I'm looking here, I cannot find a rose comb. Well, I'm guessing that probably you would have to go to something like the APA or one of the breeders clubs if you want to see the rose comb. Or they were like, let's do the rose comb. I'm sorry. Don't like the rose comb. Let's go back to the street. They're still in the standard of perfection. So I think they are still being bred for show. Everything that I've looked up shows a standard comb. To be honest with you, I never knew until I did the Did you find a picture of one? I did, but that's because I was looking at APA things. Did you find it on the net or in a book? Both. Both. Okay, let me just search this in so I can see it while we're talking about it. I mean, I can open my copy of the Standard of Perfection here and show you the beautiful paintings. Oh, wait, here we go. You got it. For me, the rose comb loses the charm of the Mediterranean. That is just my opinion. Now, my opinion is the absolute same. I'm a huge fan of the large floppy comb on the Mediterraneans. I feel like that is what makes them who they are. This is just our opinion because we are serious lovers of the Mediterranean breeds. I feel like if I want a rose comb, I will get a Wyandotte or a Dominique. I mean, we all have opinions on what we like. We all like different things. That's for sure. And we're entitled to liking different things. But I feel I mean, like Mediterraneans are known for a floppy comb. There is a rose comb leghorn as well. And I probably would not gravitate that way. No, I probably wouldn't either. I mean, one of the things I love about the Mediterraneans on the boys is that enormous comb. Well, even the girls, the little tiny bodies with the huge combs, there's something really cute about it. endearing. I mean, we do know that you have to have extra protection in the winter. Absolutely. uh, With protecting the combs and waddles at that point. Yeah, because frostbite is no joke. Right. It's terrible. So we know that they arrived in the U.S. in 1884. Four years later, in 1888, the single comb black and the single comb white had been admitted to the American Poultry Association Standard of Perfection. Okay. A little further down, in 1904, the rose comb black was admitted to the standard. And then in 1913 and 1914, respectively, we had the rose comb white admitted and the single comb buff. Yeah, the buff is not one of my favorites for the Menorca. 
I think it looks like a skinny buff orpheus. <laughs> because your brain goes, when you hear buff, your brain immediately goes to big fluffy. Yeah. Well, for me, I think two things when I hear buff. My brain does the same thing, but it goes to buff cogens. And they're both the same. And the other thing it goes to is the nankins. Oh, yeah. Because they're all those different shades I mean, of buff and chestnut. You're never going to hear me say that I don't think every single chicken is beautiful in its own way. They are beautiful in their own way. But when I think about this you chicken... You are like becoming Mediterranean breed snobs. A little bit, maybe. But when I think about this chicken, I think about the black with the white earlobes yeah. that are shocking, the big red comb. That's what makes this Menorca the Menorca. Yeah. I will say that the buff hens are pretty, but I do like the buff roos. The buff roos are, are very handsome and stately yeah. in their own way. Well, if you want a chicken that's going to lay you a lot of eggs, say you can't have a lot of chickens yeah. and you want more eggs, uh -huh. but you love the buff, instead of a buff warpington, yeah, this would be a good alternative Absolutely. because you're going to get more eggs. Yeah. They're not going to go broody like Beautiful a buff, buff warpington. Color. You have the heritage breed bloodline. But if I came over, I'd be like, you need to feed your buff a little bit more. <laughs> That's the skinniest Orpington ever. <laughs> skinniest Orpington I've ever seen in no. my life. My mind always goes that way, but that's just me. Every chicken is beautiful to me. We're looking online. You know, if they were in front of us, we would be like, oh, gorgeous, gorgeous. <laughs> so the hens are non-setters, as one would expect. And a lot of people, that's one reason why they get them. Right. You don't have to worry about broodiness. That's another reason to get these instead of buff Orpingtons. Okay, Buttercup, just the other day, I couldn't find her out there. So I'm looking from the house and I'm like, okay, I only see one buff. So I put my chicken shoes on, get out there, right? Yeah. Open up the coop door. And she's clogging up the whole system. And Poppy <laughs> is like looking at her like, I've got to lay an egg. I got to go right? get out. So I open up the nesting door and I put my hand under and there's three eggs under her. Uh-huh. What I tell you? So I take those eggs out, get her out. And then all of a sudden I see this. Oh, she's throwing stuff on her back. <laughs> like, no. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> she just sat down. As soon down. as they start that. I no. know. Telltale sign that you're getting a broody hen is you take them out, they sit there, and they she just kept taking stuff and oh, throwing what, it over the back of her. And I'm like, oh, don't you go there. That's what Honeysuckle does. It's absolutely hilarious and frustrating at the same time. And she kept picking up, like, feathers because, you know, we're at the end of molting season. Yeah. Right? So feathers are on the – and she would pick up a feather and throw it behind her. And I'm like, <laughs> come on now. So that's a good reason to get the Mediterranean. Right. You like buff color in a chicken that doesn't go broody. And a skinny one. They're supposed to be good layers of very large white eggs. Very large, which and is And you're funny. really stressing very large. Because that's what I, I saw that over and over. I mean, Lucy is little and lays a pretty big white egg. Yeah. So I can only imagine the size a of... A large Mediterranean bird that lays a very large egg. They are excellent foragers. Again, why they were probably very popular homestead breeds. Quite active. But they're reasonably adaptive to temperatures. Yeah. I mean, they're bigger, so they can keep themselves a little bit more warm. Yes. I think they have a great body shape. They're the handsomest chickens. This chicken could be a great family chicken because we know this for sure. If you put in a lot of love, you're going to get a lot of love back. Will I, they need a little bit more area, a little bit more activity? Yes. Yeah, they definitely need more activity. But say and, you get them at one day old and you put in a lot of love, that's not to say that you won't get one. But they are known to be slightly flighty and need more space. I didn't see the F word mentioned a lot with this breed. I've seen it before. Have you? Okay. Yeah. Well, Mediterranean, they it's almost an automatic. It's across the board. I mean, that's what people say about leg bars because they're half leghorn. Yeah. This is the first time we've said it on the podcast, but we're always like, they call them the F word? Yeah. Well, Mediterranean is. equals flighty. But the thing that I've learned in years of chicken keeping, you've learned in years of chicken keeping. Absolutely. Not every chicken is the same. Every single one is different. Yeah. And back to the temperatures, the Mediterraneans are known to be heat hardy. This bird is definitely heat hardy, although they're so big, I would keep an eye on them. They might need extra shade and fans. I mean, you're talking like Brahma sizes here. Well, I think every chicken deserves a fan myself in the summer. Well, I, I can't live without a fan. so I yeah. can't either, so I don't expect the chickens to. Because they're a bigger body, they're more cold hardy. However, they still have the tight feathering of a Mediterranean. Yeah. And those big coma waddles. If you're going to have them in a cold climate, they will probably need supplemental heat. I take that as a rule for basically every chicken. Yeah, I do too. Can't say anything bad. We love the Mediterranean. I did mention this before, but, you know, we have black, white, and buff here. In the UK, they have a blue version of this chicken, which is gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Look it up. It's really definitely beautiful. So let's talk about where we can get them and what clubs are available. There has been a Menorca club in the UK since 1963. Okay. And there is a Menorca Chickens USA club. They do not have a website. They have a Facebook group. 
So if you're looking for breeders in the U.S., you can head for the Facebook group. Yes. UK listeners, you can head to the Menorca Club of the U.K. club website. I have it linked in the show notes. And we need to mention something. This bird has a historical connection to a guest that we're going to have on very shortly. So this is one reason we did this. So what is a fantastic place to get the Menorca? You can get the Black Menorca and the Buff Menorca at Murray McMurray Hatchery. Yes, you can. And you're going to learn that. all about this coming up. So there you go. The absolutely beautiful Mediterranean Menorca chicken. Have you heard of Strong Animals Chicken Essentials? They make natural supplements for your flock. Strong Animals has used plant-based products and natural approaches to promote the health and vitality of backyard flocks. Their products contain organic essential oils, prebiotics, and other natural ingredients to support the immune system and digestive health. Give your chicks and chickens what they need to thrive with Strong Animals health products. Visit GetStrongAnimals.com today. Are you looking for a vintage small farm feel for your egg packaging this year? Or are you looking to develop a unique brand image with custom packaging? The A Carton Store offers a wide variety of recyclable cartons, customizable stamps, poultry care products, and a robust customizing tool to design your own labels. Plus, they offer fast, free shipping on all cartons and labels. Visit eggcartonstore.com for all of your egg carton, label, stamp, and poultry care needs this spring. Okay, so now it's about that time that we're going to move on to our main topic. And this week, we have a really great guest for you. We figured that everyone would love this, being that it's the end of March. We're in the middle of chick season right now. Right. We got to sit down with Ashley and Tom Watkins from Murray McMurray Hatchery. It was so much fun. It was a great conversation. So here it is. Please enjoy. We are so happy to have you here with us today and chatting chickens. We love your catalog. We love your website. I mean, who doesn't love baby chicks? So how are you guys doing? We're good. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Oh, it's our pleasure. We're really looking forward to talking to you. We'll get into this a bit more, but one of the things we absolutely love about your hatchery is all of the heritage breeds that you're working with. We are all about the heritage breeds. So we want to start from the beginning. A lot of our listeners are new to chicken keeping, and we'd love it if you could tell them a little bit about the early history of the hatchery. Yeah, so we've been around 105 years now, so just a little bit of time. It officially started in 1917, and that was the year Murray McMurray produced his first catalog. He was a conservationist. He was a poultry show winner. He did great at the Iowa State Fair, and that's where he really committed to doing this at the time as a side business. So, you know, it just kind of continued from there up until about 1926. It was his after-work or after school kind of hobby. He started by selling them out the back door of a bank. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah. But then the Great Depression hit and the bank closed. He was a banker. His sons, John and Charles, remember when he came home from the bank one time and says, we're going to make a living selling chickens. And so that was kind of the transition between seasonal work to this is our job now. And that's been a really true thing we've noticed in, in our time frame here when, when there's a lot of economic troubles, people go back to chickens. Um, and it was, it was the same then, it's kind of the same now. So we see bigger sales years when stock market doesn't do great or like, which is terrible to say, but that's people's comfort, you know, or that's the security. Or COVID. So, yeah. yeah. With or COVID. COVID. <laughs> Definitely. There was a huge boom in chickens and I'm sure you guys could really feel it. We could feel it as longtime chicken keepers <laughs> over here. We each needed a new coop and we couldn't get them because the boom was so big with COVID. Everyone wanted to go into food security with eggs and it definitely was a thing. Yep. 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 And then from that point on, the original Murray McMurray ran it. Then his two sons, John and Charles, took over when Murray finally retired. And then Charles' son, Murray McMurray, the grandson of the original took over with his lifelong friend, Mike Lubbers. They ran it until 2001. 2001. In 1991, oh, right. <laughs> the hatchery built a new building, which we're currently in. And then in 2001, my dad, Bud Wood, bought into the partnership and started being a partner and doing all the stuff with the hatchery. Yeah. Okay. So do we know what kind of chickens in the very beginning Murray was hatching and selling from the bank? Yeah. So we have the original catalogs as well. His favorite bird was a black Menorca. Okay. Um, so I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So there's 17 original breeds 
that we still maintain to this day, those exact same lines that he started with in 1917. We'd love to hear some. We'd love to hear some of them. Um, I think that Silver Cochin was one of them. Probably the Black Menorcas. The Black Menorcas, the Red Menorcas, the Buff Orpingtons, White Leghorns. There was a couple of different lines of White Leghorns. So some of those have gone wayside. You know, the traditional Leghorns, now it's a mm-hmm. commercialized White Leghorn. Non-industrialized White Leghorns. If you can find them. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. I love it. Menorca, I, I would not have guessed that. Yeah. There's a couple of Cornish breeds, whether the dark Cornish and the white lace red Cornish were big then. So Okay. That was out of the back door of the bank. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Menorcas. And that's so funny. It's hard to that's get a your hands on it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a Mediterranean yeah. breed. That's not it's even like a... Not an Iowa breed. <laughs> no, not, no, not at all. So you're running the hatchery these days. How did that come about? I married into it, I guess. <laughs> um, I was never hired to run the hatchery specifically. I was hired to do maintenance. I've done construction work, utility work. I was traveling a lot when we had our first child. And at that time, Bud, our, my father-in-law, Ashley's dad was the only current working owner. And it's kind of a lot of work to do by yourself. So oh, I'm sure. But I came on to do maintenance and to take over for one of the long-term guys who was retiring and uh, just ended up building the incubators that we use now. Incubation is a very important part of hatching. So so you built that whole system that's on the video right now yeah. that you have yep. on your website? Well, we're going to link that in the show notes. Uh, that video is incredible. It's really, really worth watching. Yeah, we were watching it. I was like, oh my goodness, there's so <laughs> yeah, many yeah. of them. You pull those trays out and there they are. It's like, oh yeah. my goodness. And the trays hold so many of the eggs and do the turning in the first section and then move on to the incubating in the second. And yeah. it's pretty impressive. I did that. And then I ended up taking over merchandise purchasing from another guy who was going to retire. And then I just eventually was like, well, you just want to do what I do? Because he's getting ready to fully retire. He's not quite retired yet. Last year, 2021, I became president of McMurray Hatchery. So, Well, congratulations. So that's going to bring us up to the next question. What does a day in your life look like? What I really, really enjoy about hatcheries and and just the, the, the work is it's just different every day. Mondays are our hatching day, our biggest hatching day. So we're like today we're hatching 120,000 chickens, boxing them up, shipping out to customers all across the United States. So those are our biggest days. We do that Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday for for either different breeds or different types of orders. Mm -hmm. So wholesale orders we typically do later in the week, feed stores or larger orders if they're more production breeds. Yeah, more production style breeds. Okay. So yeah, that was that's actually one of the questions I had thought of also is do you supply to feed stores also? It sounds like you do. Very select few. We just don't have the capacity to do that. Our market is is individual people. Okay. Our average order size is 25 birds. Backyard flocks, uh, exhibitionists, 4-Hers, that's where we, we do business. To do feed stores, you have to have a very large supply. They get 200 birds, but there's 2,000 feed stores that want them at the same time. Uh, exactly. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of birds. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of chips. <laughs> That's not what we're here for. So we have a couple, you know, in different areas. Blue Seal Feed up in the... New England. Yep. Um, Murdoch's Feed Stores are kind of Colorado, Montana. There's a few. And then just kind of mom and pop stores. Anybody wants to, but we're not the big ones. Okay. Single stores. (laughs) I've been keeping chickens for 20 years. So Mm -hmm. I have followed the trends. A lot of times hatcheries get a bad rap for not having good quality birds. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I saw recently that you are APA certified with some of your flocks, including those absolutely gorgeous white langtons. This is just stuff that we've always done. We asked them to look at six breeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had four judges come walk through the barns. They said right off the bat, five of those, no questions asked, those meet the APA standard. So. It was validating, but it's like that was just the beginning of, you know, we only asked them to look at these. We have more. There's some that aren't. Okay. I, will, I will admit that. I have my own little part about the APA and the changing standard. but <laughs> We all do. There's good and bad. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But I think for us all just to work together, it makes the world yeah. go around. Absolutely. So I'm assuming that you would not be able to maintain that so closely if you grew so big that you were supplying so many places. You could. It's just not economical. The feed stores want them for a small season. You produce, you know, the thousand bird flocks, and then what do you do with them? 
We do most of our hatching February through July, and then July through October is more of a production breeds. So then once November hits, we don't sell November, December, January, and it allows us to thoroughly clean the hatchery. It allows us to work on our flocks and, and get our mm-hmm. next year flocks going. And okay. Yeah, it's just, you know, scale. You'd have to have so many birds in a, in a breeding plan to do that. And then what do you do with all those black langtons the rest of the year? Right. So. I mean, I would like to take all of them. <laughs> <laughs> My husband would disown me, I think. The other question I have is, do you have a walk-up service so that if somebody cancels, is there a little store around the hatchery where someone can walk up and purchase? No, especially like we kind of highlight that now with avian influenza going around. We don't have a store. Customers can pick up at the hatchery. They get into the entryway. There's a gate. We will bring your order to you, but there's nothing out there where you can come with us. We do have a number of buyers who, if we have undersells or something that will dealt, they take the excess. So pretty rarely does that happen. Right now, it's not an enormous outbreak, but we do know that there's an avian flu outbreak. We just had a commercial facility here in Maryland that was hit. So besides what you just told us, what precautions do you have to put in place to protect your stock? So yeah, we've been part of the NPIP, the National Poultry Improvement Plan, since its founding. And before that, it was considered the Fast Egg Program, where we If an outbreak such as this were to happen where they had to decimate the egg supply, we would be able to provide clean flocks for producers in order to get, like, really, this was like, you know, World War II era. We need grocery store eggs. How do we protect that supply of stuff? So it's really started about then, so a while. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Um, But when they set out the guidelines and, and standards, so we feel we're pretty secure. Our birds are only raised inside. They don't, they're not outside birds, so there's no outside access. We're small. We don't have a huge staff, so we don't have a lot. We don't have foot traffic. Within the barns, it's two people per facility. And we have several facilities, so if one's affected, we still have five others that are not affected because they are kind of spread out through Iowa. Yeah, so they're within an hour of where we're at Webster City. Biosecurity in that case is probably much easier than it would be for a larger facility. Yeah. What we really take a lot of precaution on is we have redundant flocks. So because of what we consider the rare nature of these, they're they're irreplaceable if something were to happen. We do have flocks on different farms. Oh, I like that. Yeah, Yeah. that's fantastic. Hopefully it never comes anything (laughs) like that for you. We've talked to a poultry extension agent over here in Maryland to try to get some details for our listeners and some things that they can do at home with backyard flocks. But avian flu isn't fun. It's not something we want to deal with, but just to be prepared. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like they're inside, so they're not dealing with waterfowl going over. We are in the Midwest flyway where it's it's right over us from Mississippi to Missouri. For people at home, one of the best things they can do is just have dedicated shoes. Only wear those shoes to your choice. Don't go to the grocery store or to the, get gas. Just clean shoes. <laughs> right, right. exactly. <laughs> it's the simple things that you can do. And we're telling our listeners, putting food and water under cover and only having, we call them coop shoes, run shoes. Mm-hmm. Where they're yes. Don't wear them to the feed store. Don't wear them to the feed right. store. Please don't. <laughs> Just go to the coop and run and back to the house. And, and- that is it. We practice that on an everyday basis anyway, because we don't want to carry any pathogen from the chickens into our home. It sounds like you guys have a great handle on it, which is a really good thing for the public to know. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. So the hatchery carries a lot of heritage breeds, yay, which makes us so happy. (laughs) How do you go into choosing these heritage breeds for hatching? Sometimes it's Tom goes, hey, (laughs) that one looks pretty cool. Can we wear that one? And I so like that. That's the way we choose. <laughs> That's the way we choose tickets too. There's been a couple breeds that we've actually started in our backyard to get the flock going, and then we took them to the hatchery and actually made them production. So when you get eggs from different sources, we have a timeline within the hatchery that we put down our flocks, so they lay, and then that also keeps our vaccination schedules on. So we're always vaccinated, but at the same time, we're not mixing in flocks of different ages. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, they show up at our house and live there for a few years, and then I take eggs to incubate at work. You are with chickens in the hatchery every day, all day. And I noticed you said you have your own backyard flock. I absolutely love that. Yeah. How many chickens do you have in your own backyard flock? Right now, none. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) We we just moved. Yeah, we just moved to a, a new acreage. Our last flock, unfortunately, got taken out by a fox. 
Um, so we didn't want to start one during the winter. So we right. wait until it gets warm enough and we'll start our new flock here. So what kind of birds are you thinking about having in your new flock? I've got a limited about 30 breeds, maybe. <laughs> that is my kind of home flock right there. You are talking my language, Tom. So have you added any new breeds to the hatchery lines this year? No, we did four last year, the year before, and we're just kind of out of space. A new breed takes a pen. Yeah. You know? So if you have to detract from something else, we're really kind of just full on that part. So I got to wait a little bit so we can put up a building. And I was going to say, so how many are in this catalog? <laughs> how a many lot. breeds are in here? <laughs> I stopped counting after a hundred. So I think there's a lot. 110 if you count all the Bantam and Standard chickens. So Okay. I just sit here and gaze at these pictures. They're so cute. They're I got so one beautiful. in the mail and I FaceTimed her and waved it at her and she was like, I need so, that. So <laughs> I life. went ahead and requested one <laughs> from you to be sent to her because. Yeah. Oh, but that's what besties do, right? Yeah. <laughs> you sponsored the Livestock Conservancy's 2021 poultry census. Kudos. Oh my goodness. All the respect for doing that. That is a huge thing for the conservancy, for the conservation of these chicken breeds to know what we have out there. Can you tell us about it? We just love that you guys did this. Yeah, we did the 2010 one too. So just saying. Okay. <laughs> Amazing. We're the only sponsor for the poultry consensus in the last 20 years. It just validates, I think, what we do. We love working with the Livestock Conservancy. Our part is conservation, conservation of breeds. That's what the APA, the Livestock Conservancy, the Heritage Poultry Conservancy, whoever it is, who, if you're actively breeding chickens, we want to help. So that's all we're doing. It's, that's fantastic. We tip our cap to you because yeah. hatcheries do sometimes get a bad name when it comes to this kind of stuff. Yep. And you're changing the time and changing the outlook on hatcheries and for people who are really into chickens and don't want these chicken breeds to die out. We have to have a count. What do we have? What do we need to start pushing? We always say availability is what hinders the chicken. A lot of Sometimes it. if yeah. it's not available to the public, they don't know about it, then they're not going to buy it and we're not going to keep the breed going. So I love the fact that you have so many breeds available to people so mm -hmm. that they can make an educated decision on what they want. Let's keep these breeds going. Let's not have anything go extinct. Yeah, that's kind of, from, from our perspective, a double-edged sword, too, because you can't have more availability before there's a lot of demand because then you're throwing you're away words. And that's, you know, not ideal at all. So yeah, you try to grow the demand. You know, we do that as well as we market the newsletter. We'll, we'll highlight breeds, write histories on them. We'll share the, the Livestock Conservancy's breed highlights and stuff like that. And it's the same, you know, if you've got something you want to push, we're happy to put that too. Because a lot of these breeds do need active conservation measures. Absolutely. So, and, Which and, brings us to our next question, because we just love this. <laughs> so we've read that you're working on conservation breeding with the Derbyshire red cap. Mm. And that is the chicken that Jeanette Berenger told us she was most worried about the Derbyshire oh, red sure. cap. I would say they were functionally extinct in the United States two years ago. That was a line that we had really struggled with were livability issues, hatchability issues. We were hatching 20% birds. You know, what we could get out of the brooder would die, you know, 18, 19 weeks old. We just, we were down to, I think one rooster and six or seven hens, and there was nothing we could do to get a vigor to the chicks. So we did actually lose all of our line for about two years. And then we worked with a past customer who had gotten our line and then a line from, I think, Cackle Hatchery a number of years ago, and they had been interbreeding them. And so we actually got those birds back. We've had them for two years now, but have a, a growing population of red caps again. That's wow. amazing. I commend you. That's, That's got to be heartbreaking. Yeah. When something like that yeah. happens. We've been in contact, but then COVID. But the Derbyshire Red Cap Society in England has active breeders. So they have a good line out there. So we had been in contact with them for a number of years about trying to import a new genetic line from England. And we had got everything really set up. It was going to happen like November of 2020. I think it was 2020, 2020 because we could. That was COVID. You couldn't travel. Oh, that's oh, a shame. Is man. there any chance that you can still get some of the new birds imported? Yes. So we're, we're still in contact. 
it's just kind of paperwork, you know, there's a certain number of testing that the breeder has to do. So that's kind of the, we need to poke them a little bit. Okay. You don't do that unless you're actively importing them from into the United States. So, right. So Um, how many do you have now? I still say we're probably not more than 25 hens, but we have a couple more roosters in cases like this. People talk about breeding. You only have a certain number of roosters, but I'll keep all of the roosters and either rotate them through, keep the genetic diversity up. That's very wise. For all of the rare breeds that you are breeding, you keep all the roosters? Not all of them. Most of our flocks, we like to have bigger than 25 hens. Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) When you can have 100 hens and you can have, you know, 10 to 20 roosters to select from, then Mm -hmm. then that's a pretty good group. And we do like to move those around just so they, they stay more active. That way you get better hatchability. So what is in the future for Murray McMurray as a hatchery? Any exciting new endeavors? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Is it in the vault or can you tell us about it? (laughs) We have got a couple of really exciting things coming up. And no, I can't say yet because it's not just ours. Okay. To be honest, we just want to stay true to what Murray started. If I'm considered successful in what I've done, then in 20 years, they'll think that hatchery quality is top tier. I want to change that aspect. My dad. Your dad. He's on the Livestock Conservancy Board. So we're advocating for ourselves, but also for a good, solid place for people to start. You know, you can start raising chickens here and you're going to have good quality foundation stock to do your own heritage breeding. So important. So important. When you think about it, if someone starts out and they have no clue what's going on and they don't get good stock, that can turn them off for a lifetime. Oh, yeah. Having big, healthy birds coming to them from good stock is so important. Big, healthy We always like the big birds. Big, healthy (laughs) Yeah. Those are the ones that you can cuddle up a lot with. Yeah. It's so important because we want these people to continue to want to breed chickens and have them in their lives. It brings us to something we run into, which is we know that if you're doing conservation breeding, you need a decent amount of birds, but we have thousands of listeners who want heritage breeds. Do you feel like the backyard chicken keeper has a role to play in helping with heritage breeds? I think that for every person who starts in on backyard, you have a greater chance of getting someone to be a conservation breeder. You know, you talk about chickens being the gateway animal. I wrote it in the catalog last year. Like, that's how we started. We can do it organically, just the same as any of our customers would. I figured it out. You know, we were hauling water, frozen water all winter long. And mm-hmm. um, polar vortex. <laughs> Woo, oh, yeah. Um, and so really our appreciation of chickens, you know, we understand the work that everyone has to put into it from both sides. Just, the, you know, the care of the animals themselves. So, you know, I've got favorite chickens. She's got favorite chickens. As a young kid, I remember going to the hatchery with my dad because he did some computer stuff for the hatchery and he's always been friends with Murray and Mike. And so I just remember going to the hatchery and looking at all the birds growing up. And then now my kid's going to do the same thing. And I was like, oh, there are birds at the hatchery today. So then we have to go in the back and pet all the birds. That's so fun. That's so fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think it's every backyard's prerogative to be a conservationist, but it gives everyone an opportunity to go, this is worth saving. This is worth putting a little extra time and just keeping I think there's a stigma to heritage breeds that you're not going to get cool breeds if you get heritage breeds. They're all cool. They're all cool. Name something cooler than a Jubilee Orpington. Like, I don't I, know. I know. That's, <laughs> exactly. that's what I'm saying. But some people tend to want to go more towards hybrid breeds these days. And it's like the heritage breed is where it does, where it all started to make those fun and cool. That's why we do breed spotlights mostly on heritage breeds because they're the base. They're yeah. so much fun. Which made me think of another question. Do you feel like it's okay to sell pet quality heritage breeds to the average backyard keeper or is that like thorny territory? I think that's a different mindset. It's not one that I have, but I understand people's appeal to it. I understand there's a lot of different reasons people come to chickens, whether that's pets or, you know, more agrarian uses. And there's also, you know, a growing emotional support animal. There's a lot of instances where soldiers or ex-military with PTSD are getting into birds as therapy animals. Um, So those are really good uses. People have favorites. I mean, you've named your chickens. Is that not a pet? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So I only named them one. So every bird we own is called Fred. 
So <laughs> we're looking at them as companions, and that's what we're trying to bridge, even with veterinary care for these animals. Because yeah. once they step into your household and you love them, they <laughs> fall between the cracks when it comes to veterinary care. They're not large livestock. Hey, They're yes. not a dog and cat. So unfortunately, veterinarians aren't trained very well, and they don't learn at vet school so much how to treat chickens that aren't commercial. So one of our missions is to help bridge this gap and make it okay that these chickens can have some veterinary care. Yeah, we had, it was a couple of years ago, um, it was pre-COVID again, we had a group of veterinarians reach out to us who are putting together specifically information for other vets on poultry care. And if we would like basically pass this on and work with them to promote this, there was a doctor out of Alaska and that was like, oh yeah, absolutely. Like this is a huge need for people for doctors in order to, to treat this. Cause you're right. It's there's either large scale commercial, like you're going to treat it. You're going to treat every one of them antibiotics through the whole thing. And then there's the individual care. They're like, why it's a chicken. It was like, no, you know, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, and we always say people don't get it until they have a chicken. And then, <laughs> then the world changes. Like, then your world changes and you're like, all these things I've ever heard about chicken, it's not true. They're the best <laughs> things since sliced bread. And we're just really working hard to try to make it okay for people to not feel the stigma that, oh, I took my chicken to the vet. No, your chicken deserves to go to the vet mm, if there's something wrong. To the grocery store with you. That's like, all right, it's not a purse animal. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, some of my bantams would actually fit in my purse very yeah, happily yeah. going uh, to the grocery store. Well, I do have a special uh, needs chicken that goes to the farm brew in a stroller. She's a local celebrity, though. She's, she's the only she's, chicken out of 100 dogs there, and they're like paparazzi on her. It's like, I've never seen a chicken before. <laughs> yeah, it's the most spoiled well summer that the world will ever. <laughs> so, so our last question one for each of you is the most unfair question in the world but we ask it anyway ashley what is your favorite chicken breed <laughs> oh man i don't know if i could do one that's okay um, give us all of the ones you love i really like the sussex and i like the blue lace red wine dots and then millie floors oh they're so cute yeah i think those would probably be my top three that wonderful. All There's of them. little, like, you could just be like, <laughs> Tom, what are your favorite breeds? There's a reason that uh, the APA picked what they did. So the Black Langtons, because those are outstanding birds. They're tall, they're elegant, like, they're the waterfall flowing tails. Like, they're gorgeous. You only get with age. You know, the older they are, just the better they look. I like buff Cochins, even though I think they're terrible in a whole group together. They tend to pile on each other and different they things. And they're so fluffy. Like, they're so huge. <laughs> that there's usually one that doesn't make it. But <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. So keeping an appropriate number of coachings. Don't let the lights go out on them. Yeah, buff coachings were one of my very first breed way back yeah. when. Big soft spot um, for them. Tom's any, a fan of the big fluffy chickens. The oh, Asiatics. absolutely. The bigger, the bigger, the better. Like, I know. <laughs> See? See, this is why um, we need to buy our chicks from Rory McMurray from now on. We tried. We tried. Well, next year, yeah. we're coming. Yeah, I think is really appealing. And it's not even breed specific. It's just anytime you have a flock of a chicken, you can see the best characteristics mm -hmm. like on that. You know, when you have a mixed flock, you're like, oh, that one's pretty, you know, the Sultan or the Silver Polish is cool with its big crest. But then, like, if you have 20 of them out in your yard and you mm -hmm. can just see what that breed looked like. And I think that's just really special. And that's uh, a hat to, you know, the conservancy efforts. But you get one chicken and it's like, oh, it turns you off because it's one this one bird. Chickens have their own personalities. You know, each Absolutely. chicken is unique. But you, you want to get the full picture of a breed. You got to have a bunch of them. You need to talk to my husband. Because I need... <laughs> I have to say, Joe, come down here and talk to Tom for a little while. You've never seen a bunch of, you know, 30 buff coaches running at you from across the That's yard. That's what you I want to see. Like. It's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. It's the best thing ever. He's all like, the coaches oh, running free. I'm like, look, you need to go talk to Tom because he said the best thing to do is to get 30 warping and have them all run towards you in the yard. Well, we just want to thank you both so much. It's been absolutely delightful talking to you. We're really excited to bring your story to our listeners. Like we said, a lot of them are new to chickens, and we feel great steering them towards your hatchery. So, yeah, 
we wanted to say thank you, thank you for taking time out of your busy time of the year to sit down and talk to us. The history of Murray McMurray is really fantastic. To know that it goes back to 1917, that catalog. Catalog's yeah. amazing. And I mean, best of all, the heritage breeds you've worked so hard for. So. Yes, and your conservation work is commendable. You're doing good things for hatcheries and changing the public opinion, which is amazing. Thank you so much for taking time out to talk to us. And we'd love to have you on again in the future. Yes, thank definitely. Thank you. We just want to say thank you one more time to Ashley and Tom for taking the time to talk to us. It was a fantastic discussion. If you're looking for rare breeds and you're having trouble putting your hands on them, check out Murray McMurray's website and catalog and see what they have. And take another look at chicken breeders because Murray McMurray is doing some great things for chickens out there. Right. We love talking to both of you. It was such a fun time. Okay. So now we're going to move on to... Cracking the eggs. Cracking those eggs. And we kept with on the farm kind of recipe this week. If you got to get out there, take care of all those animals. This is actually one of my favorite quick meals. And we did stovetop grits and greens with eggs. Yeah. You don't have to have the eggs, but I like an egg on top of my grits. Yep. But every recipe we do includes eggs. So here you go. Right. It has eggs. Right. So it's pretty easy. We do use regular grits. I'm not huge into grits myself. I I'm love... just going to put that out there. You're more into grits than me. Yeah. Grits is more of a Southern thing, that's for sure. Uh-huh. I can't talk about grits without somebody bringing up my cousin Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> so I will make you laugh by saying I have a super fast version of this recipe that I do in the microwave with instant grits, a handful of greens, and a couple of fried eggs. When you need protein and you need something that's going to get you through a few hours, yes. this is that recipe, and that's why we wanted to use it. Right. So this is a more civilized version of that recipe where you're going to use regular grits and you're going to make them with some stock, some veggie stock or chicken broth, something because like that. with grits, we know you have to add in some flavor. Right. So whatever the stock that you're going to use, whether it's chicken stock, veggie stock, whatever, that is going to be the flavor of what your grits are going to so take So you on. use that for flavor and then you use about a third of a cup of half and half, or actually I used a dairy-free half and half right. that worked really well. And that's going to give you your creaminess. So you're going to follow the directions and cook your grits the way they're supposed to be cooked. And when they're thick, and it usually takes like 15 minutes, set them aside. Then this is all the magic's going to happen in this next skillet, right? Heat this large skillet up. This recipe calls for chorizo. Not a whole lot, just for some extra flavor. Right. I use soy rizzo because it's really good. <laughs> hey, the good thing for you is that you can get anything usually in the meat-free section now. So that's great. Usually, yeah. So I went for the soy rizzo is actually one of the original meat substitutes that's been around forever. And a lot of the things that you want from that are the seasonings that they put on it anyway. Right. So it's that sausage it's the texture. delicious. Yeah. yeah. So soy rizzo or chorizo, if you're using either of those, you're going to start with cooking them in the skillet. You're going to add your greens, a little bit of cider vinegar, a little bit of sugar, and a little bit of salt. Mm -hmm. And you're going to cook stirring, you know, stir the greens around until they're wilting. And you want a lot of greens because your greens are going to wilt. Right. If you put two greens on there, you're going to be like, I've got no greens left. And that pinch of sugar and the cider vinegar work together to make a slightly vinegary taste of yeah. the greens, which is a nice contrast to the creamy grits. Yeah. I have a gigantic skillet. And at this point in the recipe, just I just it. push all the greens to the side and I crack the eggs in the skillet. I mean, if you're going out to do farm chores, house chores... Hobby farm chores. Whatever. You don't want to dirty a lot of dishes that you got to come back and clean. Exactly. So one big skillet. I actually went out to like TJ Maxx last year and bought myself a huge one yep. that I could do that. Yep. Like section it off and just use one oh, versus yeah. five. I have a huge one with a lid that I use all Me the too. time. So cook your eggs there. And then you're going to whisk together all the delicious dairy stuff that's going to go into these grits. Right. So you could use sharp cheddar cheese. We use chow creamy dairy-free shreds. You could put Parmesan in there. You want a little bit of butter. I used about a tablespoon of Earth Balance. And a lot of people will use more butter and grits. And right. it's okay. And if you, you want to use more butter, you can. This is the point with your grits where you're going to mix in any cheese, the butter, some salt and pepper. And I know some people like a little kick of hot sauce. Yeah. Not in my kitchen. In my kitchen, it's always add after because Joe, Joe is, yeah. he loves spice, spice, spice. Right. And I am not a spice. So this would be bland for him with that little bit of hot sauce. He would add it in. And here in Maryland. Although he, he might be happy with the chorizo though. He would definitely be happy with that. But then he would have to add in some Old Bay hot sauce as his new favorite. Actually, if you did this with shrimp instead of eggs, the you Old could, Bay would go perfectly. That's actually a different recipe right there. Shrimp and grits. It doesn't have any eggs in it. 
but you could add the but eggs. But it's good. You can have shrimp grits and eggs. Yes. That would be delicious. Anyway, so easy. It's actually nice enough to serve this to company. I mean, it's yeah. rustic, but it's a nice dish. So, And I say- Serve any, it hot. Anything you serve, if you serve it in a pretty enough dish- Uh-huh. That makes it more appealing to eat. I would probably put this in that great big white chicken bowl that I have. You layer the cheesy grits, you layer the greens, you put the eggs over top. You take the lid off, Perfect the lid for, keeps them warm. actually would be amazing for Easter brunch. It would be good. So you serve it hot and then you enjoy, enjoy. it. So try it, take pictures, send us on Instagram. We would love to see it or email us. Either way, we would love to see it. We everything. will not judge you if you use quick grits. No, we're the queens of it's got to be done quick, too, sometimes. Fast. We got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, including cleaning up my garage because the chicks are going to be here in a week. Okay, so now we're going to move on to retail therapy. Retail therapy. Yeah. Yeah. This week's retail therapy. Oh, this is so much fun. One of our favorite things. We're talking about vintage egg scales. Yeah. And how much fun is the vintage egg scale? They're a lot of fun. I will confess, I don't have any. What? I don't. I have a couple of old postal scales that my mom has grabbed here and there over the years, but I don't actually have an egg scale. I have the replica of the chicken. Yes. Uh, Which is the Jiffy Way. Yes, which my sister-in-law, Michelle, Joe's sister, Uh bought that for me a few Christmases ago. I love it. It sits out. My mom, I keep saying to her, mom, if you're listening, I want that egg scale. Yeah. My mom has my great-grandparents' egg scale. Get out. Yes. Why is that not in the chicken studio? It needs to be in here to have a Miss safe place. Miss Jackie, that's a piece of history. We have to keep that safe. I know. We need that egg scale down here on our shelf. So she has it, and I'm like, Mom, it's the one that isn't the chicken, but it's vintage. Is it also a Jiffy Way? It's this one. Yeah, that's a Jiffy Way. Yeah. But I keep saying to her, I want that egg scale. Yeah. But we will have a place for it in the studio. And we're in a place of honor. Good yeah, heavens. it could be behind like a plastic thing or something. Egg scales have been used for decades to determine the size of an egg by weight. And people have probably been collecting them just as long. Here's the thing. We need more of these now because we are pushing more towards, and this is a good thing, uneven, irregular egg sizes. Yes. It's good to know, like, hey, in a recipe, you need this many ounces of egg right. versus too large, too small, too whatever. Right. So that we can use... I'm pretty gosh darn good at eyeballing them, but that's a skill that most people probably don't have unless you do a ton of baking like I do. After we talked to Jane over at the British Hen Welfare uh-huh. Trust, you really realize, look, these eggs, it doesn't matter the size. In the recipes, it has to be changed in how the recipes are right. being written. If you have an egg scale, you can measure. Yeah, very easily. It does tell you ounces, but it does say small, medium, large. You get it all. Well, they were originally called egg graders. Now, this is interesting, and I'm going to link this in our show notes. There is a whole international society of antique scale collectors. I can see it because they're fun. And they welcome egg scale or egg grader collectors. So if you've never seen one before, the scales are metal, and they usually have like a little cup or seat where you put the egg. They're so fun. Have you seen this one? It looks like a sundial it almost. It kind of does. It has a real cup for the egg. Yeah. And then at the bottom, it swings and tells you where you're sitting. So it doesn't actually tell you a weight. What it tells you is the weight category. Right. And why they were so useful is because they made it easier for farmers to sort eggs into the appropriate sizes. Well, they do tell you. For sale. Ounces. They tell you the range. Yeah. Well, they tell you it's between two and a quarter ounces. Right. So. Like, you put an egg on there, it's going to come up, it's going to say, this egg is a large. It should weigh somewhere between two and a quarter and two ounces. So they're telling you the standards already on right. there, what would be considered a large egg. But it is helpful if you're using your own backyard eggs right. to be able to measure the eggs and figure out what size they are. On yes. Again, they were developed for farmers to sort. Yeah. That's why my great-grandparents had it. Around 1900 is when these really came into a lot of use when... Farmers were starting to sell eggs both for hatching and for eating by mm-hmm. size. And apparently, I read that in both World War One and World War Two, the U.S. government bought gigantic amounts of eggs from farmers to feed troops overseas. Yeah. I mean, and, why not? And they wanted them sorted by size. So there are plenty of vintage scales out there, but there are also a lot of new ones that look vintage. Which is okay. Yeah. If you want to use it in your kitchen... 
for decoration and for function, yeah. you might be better off getting just the redo of the right. scale, the replica. So the replica, and then you have it there. And then if you want to find one that is legit vintage, just to put up. Right. Because you don't want to overuse one that's really old. Yeah, and you don't break want it or, to it. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Tractor Supply, the Red Shed brand, they have a replica that looks fantastic. Exactly. Super fun. Yeah. In fact, my mom said to me right after Christmas, she's like, do you have an egg scale? And I was like, yeah, Michelle bought me the one that looks like a chicken. She goes, oh, because Tractor Supply has it. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, because yeah. you have the one that's from the right. 40s and 50s. <laughs> that's the one, but she's holding that one dear to her heart. Oh, that one needs to be in the chicken studio, <laughs> exactly. I think. This is the perfect place to keep it safe. So the other thing is they're awesome for photo ops. Oh, that's for sure. If you want to display one egg that's really speckled or bright color, putting it on the egg scale and zooming in on that scale and that egg, it's a great photography tool. They're great to collect. They would look great on a shelf somewhere. Just lots of fun. Apparently, from what I've read, a lot of these are very regional. Yeah. You kind of have to familiarize yourself with what they look like in order to find them in the wild. Right. Some of the most common makers are Jiffy Way and Acme. Yes. So you'll find them pretty easily. And Jiffy Way made lots of different versions. They made the chicken. They made the chicken. And then they made the the green and the red ones. ones. Yeah. So some of the other manufacturers you can look for are Brower, Oaks Manufacturing, Specialty Manufacturing, and Keller. It's another company that made them. So once you understand how they work, you know that when you see them. Yeah. And, and they're they're cool. Yeah, they're really cool. So here's the other thing. One of our sponsors is acartons.com and they actually sell the replica chicken scale on their website. It's great. And it's thirty nine ninety five, and you get the replica vintage box. Oh, cool. Look that at that. It would have come with also. So that's acartons.com. You can get the white chicken, which is so cool. That's the one I have. Uh-huh. It's easy to order. They have free shipping there on over $25. Perfect. So, hey, check it out. Check out their egg cartons while you're at it because they have some adorable vintage cartons. Oh, yes. Yeah. Send us pictures of your scales. We would love to see it. Okay. So, let's tell everybody what we're going to be talking about next week. Next week, we're spotlighting an absolutely beautiful chicken, the Bielefelder. I cannot wait. We're interviewing registered dietitian Amy Adams, who is also a chicken mom. It was so much fun. It's a great interview. She's going to tell us some really surprising things about eggs in our diet. You'll never have guessed it. Cracking the eggs is one of Amy's recipes. It's a pizza egg bake. So yummy. Making me hungry. I know. And retail therapy. We're going to be reviewing a children's book. It's going to be so much fun. It's called Interrupting Chicken. Yay! Okay, so what should we tell everybody to do until next week? Hug your chickens. Every day and kiss them too. Don't forget, we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. If you'd like to see more of us, please follow us on Instagram at Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. If you'd like to help us grow the podcast, please leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, please visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash coffee with the chicken ladies. Thanks for listening. Ha, 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 ha.